Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. Today, we're excited to welcome another guest to our show. We are joined today by Jessica Spott, who is a PhD candidate in educational psychology at Texas Tech University, and she's a mother of a four-year-old boy and a nine-month-old boy. And on top of that, she is also the director of the STEM Center for Outreach Research and Education at Texas Tech. Welcome, Jessica, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're both really excited to have you here. Usually in every episode when we have a guest, we'd love to hear about you and maybe you could share a little bit about yourself as well as your journey as both a mother and an academic. I wondered how did your experience as a mother impact your journey as an academic and perhaps even your research specifically or vice versa, if at all? Sure. So um, I have uh, quite a story, as I'm sure most uh, of your listeners do. Um, But one of my oldest memories was of meeting a faculty member at a career day when I was in uh, middle school. And uh, I remember talking about their ability to do research whatever they wanted, kind of whenever they wanted. And I remember thinking that would be the best job ever. And so from a very young age, I always thought it would be an awesome job to be able to be a tenure track faculty member. And so um, from that point, uh, I had someone tell me that it was impossible to be a faculty member and be a mom. And so I had to choose whether I was going to be an academic or whether I was going to be a mom and have a family. And I remember being really upset by that, as you can imagine. And uh, so I stuck with that. I held on to that false truth for a long time and kind of had roadblock after roadblock in my academic journey. And so in middle school, I also had, it was a a really influential time for me, but I also had a math teacher uh, and I was questioning some of the reasons behind some of the math things that we were learning. And I remember she just kept telling me, I would say, why do you why do you do it this way? What's the purpose? You're telling me to do it this way, but I don't understand. I know how to do it. Can you explain to me why? And she said, well, you just do it this way because I told you to do it this way. And I remember thinking, well, that's insufficient, right? That's not a not a explanation that that vibes well with me. And so, uh, from a young age, I thought, well, I'm just no good at math. I'm not cut out for math. Um, and so from a young age, I thought, well, I'm no good at math and I'm, I want to be an academic, but I'm not going to be able to because, you know, I kind of had this fixed mindset of I can't do that. And so, you know, fast forward, I went to college, got a BA, got married, uh, completed my master's degree in communications, um, and then began working here at Texas Tech uh, for the STEM Center. It is a mouthful. We call it STEM Core, uh, STEM <laughs> Center for Outreach Research and Education. Um, and uh, I remember uh, engaging with STEM faculty 
and who were extremely talented and gifted in um, as academics. And I had the pleasure of meeting uh, quite a few moms who were STEM faculty. And really, they just encouraged me and showed me that having a family and being an academic is possible. And so um, my husband and I decided it was time to have kids. And we uh, had our first son. And about a year in, I kind of got the itch. And it was like, I, I'm ready to go back to school. Um, I had a, a, a PhD um, advisor, a program director, uh, who I went to meet with to see which program would be the best fit for me. And they said, you know, if you haven't worked in higher education for more than five years, we won't accept you in our program. And I said, I have a 4.0 in my master's degree. I have a vice provost who would write a letter of recommendation for me. I'm a really good candidate. You should let me in your program. And they said, no, unless you've worked in higher education for more than five years, uh, you won't be a good fit for our program. And so I, I had that other roadblock and um, decided I was just going to have to stick it to them. <laughs> And so um, really took that opportunity, went back to school, found the program that was the right fit for me, um, people that were willing to work with me and uh, get me in and out as quickly as possible with the best work that I could produce. Um, and, uh, you know, I've had these STEM faculty moms that have just encouraged me every step of the way um, and show me that uh, going back to school to get my Ph.D. was not only uh, possible, but it was a, a choice that was the best choice for my family. It wasn't a choice that was selfish. Um, and it was a good thing to do. And so, um, like I said, I'm in my, uh, about to start my last semester, uh, hopefully, um, working on my dissertation now. And so um, I'm on the job hunt. And so um, that's, that's where I'm at right now. So two boys. <laughs> two boys that's yep. that's a, such a rich story there's so much there just from all of that negativity and the sort of I love that you can trace your desire to be an academic back to middle school I um Aaron and I have talked about how like important the middle school years were for us but mm -hmm. I don't know that I can like the, the they obviously are formative years but I don't know that I can trace my desire to become an academic back quite that far so that's really that's really exciting to see at the same time it the fact that it's just sort of developed in in light of adversity and 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 as a matter of persisting against all of these messages that you received from adults in your life, I think is really um, discouraging and encouraging at the same time, I feel yeah. like. So um, it's really interesting because, you know, I, I grew up thinking that I was no good at math and, you know, doing my bachelor's degree, I um, didn't take any math heavy courses because I was convinced I had bought into this mindset. Um, you talked several weeks ago about fixed mindsets. Um, I had bought into the fact that I was just no good at math. And it took me uh, well into my master's degree where I realized I really was good at math. I was very competent, very good. I didn't like it much, um, but it wasn't a lack of ability, right, which is what I had thought I had had for so long. And so it, it's pretty empowering knowing, you know, I did a, a quantitative master's degree. I'm going to have a half quantitative uh, PhD. And so it's just a little kind of stick it to my middle school 
math teacher, you know, to show her that I'm, I'm competent and I can do it. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. <laughs> yeah. That's really exciting for sure. Aaron, did you, I'm sorry. Did I, did I cut you off? Were you going to? No, I just, I think that story resonates with a lot of us that might've grown up here as well. And I still would like to dig in deeper, maybe in the future about how those sort of narratives formed by teachers at that formative, formative age really seem to impact us because as a female student as well, I started out really interested in the sciences. I loved science. I actually wanted to be an ornithologist. That was my first thing that I really wanted to do, which is um, connects back to the bird watching. But suddenly there's a shift to, well, you're not, you know what, you're really good at communicating. And I always was a good writer, but I just, I've heard that narrative more than once of how female students have felt like maybe pushed or shifted away from certain subjects. And it's it's unfortunately, I think, a common narrative. But I liked what you had said. It's both discouraging but encouraging. I think your persistence is what I really like to hear about. Well, I certainly had um, a supportive husband and lots of other people in my corner, my family that were like, hey, you can do whatever you want. You know, um, even my grandparents who are, you know, traditionally more old school, right, in gender roles were very much like whatever you want to do, you're capable of doing. And so um, the good news is I never heard those messages at home, right? And so I think that part to me is the most encouraging because we realize um, what we're saying in the home actually matters, right? And so I was really empowered at home, although I heard kind of and stuck to some of those external messages um, from outside the home. Yeah, I think they stick with you. And especially those experiences of like, that's such an important, that's such an important factor of learning is to ask, why are you doing things a certain way? And then to have that shut down by a teacher, I think that would be easy to internalize. The other thing that I really liked about your journey that I wanted to pick up on was just the the encouragement that you found um, once you w- started working at STEM Corps. I'm just going to cut it short for myself. Yeah, no um, <laughs> to have sort of the other, you know, the other scholar uh, scholars mo- that are also moms encourage you to pursue this dream of yours. That I like that you said you got you got the itch after a while, um, and then to have a group of other moms that can be like, yes, you can do this. That's just um, that's that shows how important that can be as well in terms of sort of cheering us on and and um, the support system that you sometimes need to to develop the courage to take that step. Um, could you speak a little bit more to your project? I'm really interested in hearing more about your work. When you started emailing us, I um, looked up like I, you know, I found I think a paper that you had published, and I came across this term of the mother scholar, which was really interesting to me because um, I was when I was working on my dissertation, I was working on motherhood studies a little bit, and I hadn't in my own research, I hadn't come across this term at all. So I I was trying to sort of find out a little bit more about what that is, and I'm sure that some of our listeners would be curious as well. Can you tell us what a mother scholar is? And can you tell us more about what kinds of questions you're asking about them in your work? Sure, absolutely. So um, for just so that anyone who's not familiar with STEM, I want to start off with just kind of talking a little bit about STEM. I've thrown that acronym um, out a few times, um, but it stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. And so um, when I talk about STEM, uh, know that those are kind of the disciplines that I'm, that I'm referring to. Um, so a little bit of 
a background on STEM before I move into Mother Scholars. Um, STEM, primarily the literature focuses on women in STEM uh, and looking at the persistence um, and recruitment and retention of uh, women and girls within STEM disciplines. And so um, we see oftentimes in the literature, um, women are studied in STEM versus non-STEM fields. And so um, current research suggests uh, that there is actually a larger discrepancy between mothers in STEM and non-mothers in STEM than there is between males and females. And so this is um, primarily within faculty, uh, within um, academic uh, STEM fields. And so um, this is a huge discrepancy. Uh, A lot of billions of dollars um, have been put in Uh, to researching um, increasing women in STEM, and uh, very little research has been done uh, looking at mothers in STEM. And so what literature that does exist, uh, looking specifically at mothers in STEM, uh, motherhood is treated as a factor uh, that's primarily primarily disparaging. So motherhood is um, in STEM literature uh, focused on all the drawbacks of motherhood um, on your career. Uh, you're not paid as much. You're not, it's, it's very negative, right? Um, uh, you're not going to advance in your career. Uh, you're less likely to get tenure, all of these very negative factors, um, which is why I was really drawn to this construct of mother scholars. So mother scholars um, is actually all one word, um, capital M for mother, capital S for scholar, but it's all put together in one word. And what's important of that is, is these women that are identifying as mother scholars are equally and 100% at all times both mother and scholar. And so it's this new form of identity of equally and 100% um, mother and scholar. And and the really important thing about this term of mother scholars is that um, the mother informs the scholar and the scholar informs the mother, and it's to the benefit of both. And so I think that this is a really unique um, opportunity to view mother and scholarship motherhood and scholarship um, in mutually beneficial and positive uh, roles. Um, The reason you probably haven't heard of this is this term is less than 10 years old. Um, It was uh, named by Mateus at the 2011 American Education Research Association Conference. Um, She just mentioned it in one of her talks and uh, several scholars uh, kind of latched onto it. And it's kind of been through several iterations since then. Um, Do we capitalize the mother? Do we capitalize the scholar? Um, Each person kind of has their own way of referring to mother scholars. Um, But it it has continued to gain momentum uh, since then, uh, specifically within humanities and the arts fields. So mother scholarship um, is primarily focused right now in humanities and arts. We see lots of uh, folks in literature and education um, and uh, art um, doing studies on mother scholarship right now. Um, But there is 
literally no research uh, using this construct of mother scholars within STEM fields. And so that's kind of where I have positioned myself, um, kind of a foot in both worlds um, as an education researcher, uh, but also as a STEM uh, employee. Uh, I've kind of made it my mission to kind of bridge this gap and bring um, this construct of mother scholarship uh, into the STEM fields. And so um You can see how this approach is appealing uh, to uh, women in STEM to be able to study mother scholars uh, from a position of power and benefit versus uh, looking at the hindrances and drawbacks of um, mothers uh, in STEM. And so really what I'm looking at is um, trying to identify the differences in the experiences of mother scholars in STEM versus non-STEM. That sounds fascinating. I'm I'm loving it. Do you have a little more to follow up? I just, I, 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 um, to me, it's just fascinating because I have three daughters and I'm constantly receiving a lot of emails about programs focused on bringing more young women into the STEM fields. But it seems like a big miss then. I think what you're pointing towards is while we're encouraging women and girls to take STEM courses and there's like a program here in Metro Detroit. Metro Detroit called Steminista, and it's at our Detroit Science Center and all this great stuff, then there's this disjunct, right, that um, we can't necessarily have children and be participating in the field that others would. And what I found really fascinating that you've already said is that it's not so much, um, the divide isn't so much between male and female, but females with children and without. Is that kind of what you were suggesting there? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so we see now more than ever, um, the number of girls uh, that are actually graduating with uh, even terminal degrees in STEM. Um, we're seeing more than we've ever seen, which is great. That shows that some of these initiatives are are working. Um, but what we see is a stark drop-off um, after uh, women in STEM are getting their PhDs. So right now, there's more women graduating with their PhDs across the nation than men. Um, and there is, we are not seeing that number reflected in the number of tenure track faculty that are being, being hired in academia. And so um, there's this kind of huge drop off. And uh, one of the, the major um, ideas uh, that is being um, tossed around as a reason for this is um, that um, faculty don't believe or women don't believe when they're graduating that they can have a family and uh, be academics, but are rather feeling like they have to choose one or the other. And so um, many females are not entering the academic field uh, with STEM degrees. They're either going to industry or deciding to do something different and stay at home with their families. Um, And so within that realm, um, some of the Uh, factors that I'm going to be looking at uh, with my current project, my dissertation, is um, looking at how women in STEM uh, view their different work environments, their personal support networks, um, career-related intentions, where they want to be in five or 10 years, um, and then also their expectations, um, the things that they value, uh, the things that they're willing to give up to be successful. And so um, 
Of course, there's lots of different uh, intricacies on this study, um, but uh, also quite timely is I've, I've been able to add um, COVID uh, into my study as well. And so uh, we've seen that um, be a significant uh, factor on how people are dealing with this whole pandemic. So um, there's lots of factors, but it's been a really exciting um, piece of research so far. Um, and then specifically, uh, I mentioned, you know, kind of bridging the gap, uh, having a foot in both worlds. But um, we see most of the literature coming out of STEM fields uh, are primarily uh, quantitative data um, because the numbers speak uh, to people that are very um, uh, logical. And so what we see most of the Mother Scholar scholarship um, is qualitative, as you can imagine, um, about stories and uh, learning the experiences of women. That scholarship isn't valued very highly um, within STEM disciplines. We're seeing that shift change, um, but it's a slow process. And so um, with my project, what I've been able to do is actually do mixed methods research. And so I'm not only getting the stories, but also getting the quantitative data and able to put those two things together to show value to our STEM folks and also to our non-STEM folks. So I'm hoping to kind of bridge the gap in that way as well. That's really exciting. I think Erin and I probably, I chuckled a little bit. I don't know if you heard me. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the personal narratives are just so important to um, the work that we do and just sort of, you know, the, the idea, the, the way that we're trying to teach students to relate to literature and things like that. Um, obviously we, you know, have that strong belief in sort of like the personal narratives. And so that's, but it's, but I also understand sort of the value of um, more number driven research. So I think that's really neat that you're able to like to, to bridge the gap or to use a mixed method approach, as you say, that sounds really exciting and, and compelling. And yeah. And, you know, in terms of thinking about your, you know, your audience, that's, that's great to be able to, you know, speak to a variety of different audiences from different disciplines. So that's a, that's a great setup, I think. Yeah. I'm hoping they take it seriously. So we'll see. <laughs> right. Right. One thing that I wanted to latch on that you mentioned earlier before we move on is the the question of how sort of the two identities feed each other or are you I think you said something like mutual mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about um, some like more concrete ways of what that could look like. Um, and you can, you know, feel free to draw from your research or your personal experience either way. But I'm really interested in this idea that there is some sort of like mutual feeding between the two um, roles into an overall sort of, I don't know, complete identity or whatever. Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, within uh, education research, we see this um, oftentimes uh, when talking about mother scholars where um, women uh, who you know, have been scholars for a long time, then become mothers. Um, and they really shift uh, what their research topics are because of an experience uh, with their children. So for example, um, I had a, I had a teacher um, and she uh, was in an argument with her husband about um, screen time, right? And she was talking about 
um, how she wanted to prove her husband wrong uh, about the amount of screen time that he wanted to give their daughter. And so um, she's an educational researcher. And so she dove straight into the literature and started looking up um, information about uh, developmentally uh, the appropriate amounts of screen time and couldn't really find what she wanted um, as far as the types of questions that she was asking. And so she just ran her own study, right? And she did her own research. Um, and so uh, it turned into a research project that she ended up working on for several years and got national attention for. And um, so she said, I never in my whole life thought that I would be studying um the impacts of screen time educationally on kids because it's never something I cared about until I became a mom and it was part of my experience. And then all of a sudden I saw value in a new way, um, in a different type of research. And so, um, that's just one small example about how, um, these two roles can be mutually beneficial. Um, now benefiting the other way, uh, you know, um, that was kind of an example of motherhood benefiting scholarship. Um, to reverse that uh, is when um, we see scholars who are um, volunteering at their kids' schools because they've learned about um, ways that their schools can improve and do things better. And so um, through their research, and so they've decided uh, to volunteer um, at their kids' schools and be able to impact uh, and make a change um, on some of the uh, education uh, that their students are receiving. And so these um, patterns of being mutually beneficial are well established uh, within mother scholarship in education, uh, but have not really been well established um, well at all within STEM disciplines. And so that's one thing I'm curious about is, does it impact? Um, what I'm seeing currently in my research is that the research topics aren't really impacted, but the way in which STEM faculty work and engage with their graduate students has been deeply impacted um, by motherhood. And so, um, you know, it's just a give and take, but um, faculty are saying things like, I became a much more compassionate teacher overnight after I had my child right? Um, I realized turning something in three days late really wasn't a big deal. They have life happening too, right? And so, and even I know you guys have talked about that too, you know, sometimes it's just not that big of a deal, you know? And so um, it's, it's this idea of how these two things can, can mutually benefit um, both roles. I hope that helps yeah. offer some clarification. That really res that resonates with me a ton. Erin, let me just slip this in real quick before I'll give you a, an opportunity to respond too. just because that def that resonates with me just because of how I came my how my dissertation topic came about. I was in a completely different sort of um, arena and had an idea for a dissertation topic. And then after I was done with my qualifying exams, I had my daughter and I just had this long um really difficult time where I was struggling with like postpartum depression and other kind, you know, it like a mix of postpartum and just sort of grad school related depression. And I had so many questions about that, that I ended up developing an entire dissertation topic around that. So it's definitely something that resonates with me um, on that front. So I don't know, Aaron, you had something to respond to. 
Well, I was just thinking about now that my children, you know, my son is older, but that idea of being a scholar and connecting back to his school has been interesting as well. He actually has been on this robotics team and he functions in the media capacity on Uh that team. And so, you know, he's supposed to be writing copy and prose to like promote what the team is doing. And so it was a great fit to have some guidance from they're like, Oh, you have a PhD in English. Wow. That's really cool. The students really need a lot of help with uh, their writing. And so I thought that was a really good sort of way to combine my motherhood and, you know, my passion for writing. And I do, we have talked a little bit about how motherhood does play into the classroom, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. Just after going through four pregnancies and being pregnant, you know, I think three out of four were either in the master's program or PhD program. I'm just, certain things don't probably perturb me in the way that they might other professors. If someone needs Mm -hmm. extra time, you know, or things happen, right? And so I get that. And I think I just really think this is a really cool way of thinking about how both of those identities inform not only one another, but then it's a positive sort of relationship between the two, which really, I think my motherhood has made me so much better in so many things. So I love that. Um, You had a follow-up question, right? Well, I just, another thing that I wanted to mention in this context, Jessica, this is actually something that you brought up in an email, I think at some point, is the the way that motherhood really um, helps us get more organized um, and how that's an asset that, you know, really in, in certain job in certain fields is really is really a helpful skill to have. And that's, you know, difficult to you can't really put that on your CV or whatever. But just juggling all of these different tasks and responsibilities really does um, help with certain, you know, with project management or whatever. So, I, you know, I thought that's another that was another um, aspect that just that I just recalled when we were in this, you know, when we were having this conversation because you and I had emailed about that beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. And really, that's one thing that I'm finding in my research is um, a lot of the mother scholars that I've talked to basically have said exactly that is I'm a much better employee. Um, I'm a much better scholar um, since becoming a mother because I do, when I show up at work, I focus 100% on work. And when I leave, I leave, you know? And so rather than putting in a whole lot more hours producing the same amount of work, I streamline things and um, the ability to multitask and work on multiple projects at one time. Uh, and they've all talked about how how much productive, more productive uh, they have been uh, since becoming mothers. Um, and actually, I was attending a conference um, a few months ago, and they were talking about um, within industry, um, several large organizations have actually um, extended uh, women's maternity leave by adding um, additional trainings on top of it because they said mothers are the best employees that we have. If we can leverage their productivity um, and and train them after uh, maternity leave, then we come back with employees that work twice as hard and produce additional, you know, more, more work than everybody else put together. And so I think it's a really important piece to note for sure. Yeah. There's something about that, the stress that comes from, or like, you know, the, the, 
yeah, the the pressure that comes from knowing, you know, you only have this much nap time, how much can you accomplish <laughs> yes. in 45 minutes? And, you know, and you might not even have 45 minutes because today might be a shorter nap. So, yeah, there's just a, I think there's something to be said for productivity and focus and just, you know, being able to um, to really zone in on the on the one thing over here and the other thing over there. I think that's really um, that's really insightful. So um, I wanted to follow up here and ask you about um, these research results and how they reflect um, in your own personal experience. What is sort of the most remarkable thing that you've found so far in your research? And does that resonate with um, what you're experiencing at home? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing that I uh, have been really struck by, and and mind you, I'm still in the uh, beginning stages. I'm still analyzing data at this point. Um, but initial responses uh, to both my qualitative um, survey as well as my quantitative um, case studies is this idea of um, mother scholars in STEM don't perceive themselves to have any significant difference um, than mothers across different disciplines within the academy. Um, I think oftentimes, you know, because of the the funding of uh, studying women in STEM versus women in non-STEM, I think oftentimes we perceive these silos of, well, you're STEM, you're non-STEM. We run in two different worlds. We can't what could we possibly connect with? Um, and I think um, one really interesting thing is that um, everything that I'm looking at shows we're no different, you know, uh, whether you're STEM or non-STEM, we're, we still have the same struggles. We still have the same um, disadvantages uh, within the academy and and still the same uh, passion uh, to help our kids and to be the best academics that we can be. And so um, I think that it's really fascinating uh, to look at um, how those silos don't really exist, although in real life they do, right? Um, I know you guys have even said, like, I don't really know anybody outside of, uh, you know, our area. Um, And so I'm the same way. The only reason I know anybody from STEM is because of my job, right? But um, one of my primary roles within STEM Corps is connecting faculty across campus um, who could work well together and leverage what they're working on. And so um, it's exciting to be able to connect mothers with mothers, right? And and really see how that community has developed. Um, And so that's, that's one area that I'm able to not only personally benefit, but also um, see that reflected in my research. Um, And then we already kind of talked a little bit about the added value um, that mothers, uh, mother scholars bring to their departments. And so um, that's another area that I'm seeing really uh, poignant within the data. Um, And then obviously it's, it's difficult to talk about this uh, without seeing the, um, areas that we still need to improve uh, within academia, um, becoming mother-friendly and parent-friendly even more than that. Um, And so uh, we see that uh, oftentimes faculty perceive support um, 
as far as, you know, they might be given the option to stop their clock or uh, say someone's going to take over their um, teaching for the semester that they have their child. But what we're seeing is, even though those are stated as supports, um, the reality of it is um, every one of the people that I've talked to has a story about, well, I was supposed to be on maternity leave and I was in the hospital and someone called and said, this is what I need from you. Or I was talking to the program officer as I was recovering from my C-section or, you know, um, all these different types of perceived support. Um, so we're building in support within the academy, but also we have a long way to go. Um, and so I think that that's really important. Um, and then the final thing that I'm so far seeing in my research, uh, and we can we can dive into this or not, whatever you guys decide, but um, is really just the effects, the long lasting effects of uh, COVID and this pandemic um, on mother scholars. Uh, it looks like the effects are obviously going to be personal, relational, professional, um, and, and this is women across the board, not just academics, of course, you know, um, we've seen statistics like 865,000 women left the workforce uh, in, in September, right, which is four times higher than the number of men who left the workforce. Um, and so we see the implications of this uh, starting, uh, but we won't see the feel the full effects of it for, for a long time to go. And so, um, Really, it's just my pleasure, my my passion <laughs> to be able to um, highlight some of these areas of improvement and continue to bring um, equity and and uh, into into academia. So, yeah, that's, that's really that's really important work, and I know that Judith and I both really believe strongly in that as well. And we have already talked a lot about just how the pandemic has forced us into conditions at home with our work that are less than ideal. <laughs> We've covered that quite a bit. And I think just anecdotally looking at the data and research or just even looking at the jobs list right now, I mean, there's just not as many opportunities or openings. And I know the unemployment rate for those of us in higher academics, higher, um, higher education is also kind of really high. And we're just, I feel like we're going to continue to see these results on a massive scale. Um, but Jessica, we've talked a lot about our attempts to find balance um, during our time as doctoral candidates, and we remember that being kind of an interesting time in life. But as you mentioned, now during the pandemic, um, how are you navigating the challenges of multitasking right now? <laughs> Do you feel like you're able to achieve any balance? I mean, it sounds like you're incredibly busy. <laughs> yes and yes. Um, so I think, you know, um, navigating is the key word, right? Every day is a, is a different journey, a different struggle. Um, but uh, yeah, I currently have really three, three full-time jobs, right? I'm a, a full-time student, uh, full-time uh, staff member here at Texas Tech, and then um, I'm a mom and and wife. And so, uh, yeah, it's to, to say it's been a challenge, um, is probably the understatement of the year. Uh, my youngest son was born the first day that there were any cases here in my city. Um, and so when we checked into the hospital, there were zero cases. And when we checked out, there were two cases. And so, um, it's been a struggle, uh, being real honest, uh, just navigating postpartum and um, and all of these other roles that I've had going on uh, when 
people that are my rock and my community were not able to come visit, you know? Um, and so with my first son, when he was born, we had something like, I counted in his baby book, something like 40 people come visit us in the hospital. Um, and because we're so social, like our community is everything. Our families are both really supportive. Um, and so it was just really, really exciting. And with my second son, uh, by the time he turned two months old, he had been held by four people, you know. Um, and so just navigating that emotionally has been very difficult. Um, thankfully, at this point, we're, uh, we've settled down a bit. Our kids are back in, in school, daycare, and um, I'm back in the office. Uh, and so uh, things have gotten a little bit better, uh, as you can imagine. But my husband also is an essential worker. And so, um, you know, we came home from the hospital on day four and all of a sudden he was, uh, he works in IT. So when everything went virtual, um, he was having to, uh, sustain and come up with all sorts of new systems. So he actually went into working overtime, um, every week. And I was stuck at home with a four day old and a four year old. Right. And so, um, we've had some struggles that that's the kind way to put it. Uh, thankfully at this point, we've, we've hit a stride of, of new normal that we've been able to navigate. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I would say to balance it is laughable probably, but, uh, but we, um, every day we have successes and every day we have failures. And so we try and, uh, let those balance out and, and try not to fail at the same thing every day. Right. Um, and try, therefore, not to succeed at the same things every day either. And so um, it's an ever shifting uh, priority shuffle, I would say. <laughs> so but yeah, it's been really great just to um, find and establish uh, a new community in a new way. Um, and some of my old community has really adapted uh, in the ways that they've been able to support us. And so thankfully, I haven't been in total isolation. Um, you know, when people just drop off boxes of diapers on your doorstep, you know, that's really meaningful. Um, or, or, you know, just even, Hey, can you send me pictures of your new baby? Like that to me was super supportive. Um, I know you can't come over and hold him, but like, act like you want to see him, you know? (laughs) And so, um, you know, it's been a struggle, but, um, it's been, it's been good. We've survived. (laughs) here. I that's I'm I'm a little speechless that sounds like just so much um I don't just working through all of that and then you know not having the support of your husband with a newborn baby uh and and the family around and all that that just sounds like a lot and I think you know it's that's one of obviously one of many stories and it just is so important to to hear those stories and to talk about them. Uh, and I'm just sort of going through my mind and comparing that to my own experience. And it, yeah, it's I'm a little speechless. Erin, do you have a response? No, it's just like I think that a lot of people haven't even made those considerations about what it's like to be a new mom right now if they're not, right? And just the kind of expectations and the assistance that we often receive, how the pandemic has like really cut off a lot of new mothers. And I just, I think you've navigated it so gracefully, but at the same time, it just, it's, 
I'm I'm overwhelmed as well just thinking about it because, you know, my own mother lives so close by and like just having making the switch from one children to two children is often stressful anyway. And then just not being able to rely on that network can be really a challenge. So it sounds like you've done really well under pressure, but at the same time, I don't want to normalize this either, you know, because this isn't normal. Um, I know that we're all trying to say we're getting back to normal, but it's just not. And, you know, there's all the cliches about it takes a village, but sometimes it really does. Sometimes we really do need and want that support. So, um, Bravo to you. I just, I can't imagine, honestly. I'm a little speechless as well. <laughs> well you guys I are like- super sweet. <laughs> it, it has not, sur- you know, I can paint a picture that's that's uh, happy on this end of it. Um, it certainly has been a struggle. Um, but but realistically, you know, when, when people call and they're like, hey, we just hid Easter eggs in your front yard uh, for your son to come out and hunt Easter eggs. It's like, I haven't left the house in four days. You guys are amazing. You know, like our four weeks, you know, and, and I was just feeling crummy because we can't celebrate Easter. Cause like I'm going through and pulling out, you know, um, Valentine's day candy to put in my kids Easter eggs. Right. Cause I don't have new candy. Right. And they're like, we hit Easter eggs in your front yard, go hunt for them, you know, and just little acts of, of service and love. Um, and certainly, you know, my husband uh, has gone back to a normal work schedule. He had a really heavy load at the beginning, and um, that was a struggle. But he's, you know, since everything has finally moved virtually and everything, um, it's gotten much better. And so he's a huge support um, and helps in so many ways. But one thing that has made this bearable is just the fact that I am passionate about the research that I'm doing. I can tell you if I had something that I liked less, I guarantee it wouldn't be getting done, right? Um, But I feel right now an especially heavy sense of um, duty to complete this dissertation, get the research out because it's significant, right? And and such a time as now um, to continue to highlight um, not only the issues, but also the benefits, right, of motherhood. And it's super hard, but um, it's worth it. And and that's one thing that I hear over and over again in my research is, you know, my question is, would you do it again the same way if you had to? And 100% has said absolutely yes. Like, it's a struggle, but like, it's so worth it. And so like, hearing that even kind of makes me emotional, right? Because I think like, have the last nine months been terrible? Uh, Yes. (laughs) But is it worth it? And have there been times of just sweetness and joy and um, beauty? Absolutely. And so um, make no mistake, it hasn't been flawless. uh, But but there's been persistence at, at minimum, right? So... I love that story about the Easter eggs. I think it's just so great to see how the way the different ways that people have found and come up with to support each other through all of this. Um, and so that's that's really um, that's really encouraging. Again, and th- the one thing that I will say is that what you're saying about your research just I under like I I understand sort of the. I understand that you're saying this is really important to me um, and that's why I'm doing it. But I still want to say a big kudos because I'm st- so my youngest is 14 months or 13 months or something like 13 months this week. 
And I am still not entirely sure that I'm out of sort of that postpartum mode where everything's a little hazy and everything's a little blurry. And so um, to be able to push through that uh, like you have been and to make progress on your research and to make progress on your dissertation is really commendable, I think. So kudos to you, I think. And I think Aaron and I are very excited, too, for the research that you're doing. And, I, you know, I hope that it'll be, you know, what I think you've published some of it. Um, do you have other plans to publish? Are you working on articles too? Is this going to be, um, mostly in dissertation form right now, or are you working on getting this out in other form too? Because I'm certainly interested in reading more. Um, and then I'll get back to the next questions. (laughs) The hope is that, um, I'm doing a non-traditional dissertation, which is the first three chapters are normal. Um, but then the last, or chapter four and five will be um, standalone articles. And so um, I'm currently working on writing those now. And so the hope is that once I pass a (laughs) dissertation, um, I can immediately push those out to publication. Um, And so the hope is that uh, by hopefully spring break, they're out. And so um, at least they've been submitted. So um, that's the plan. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, I, you you'll have to keep us um, updated on that because That's I'll right. I'll really want to I'll really want to see that. Um, so going back to what you were saying earlier, you know the way that you said we're working on, you know, we don't want to have the same successes and the same failures every day. Just sort of thinking about living through the quarantine and COVID nineteen with three full time jobs on a day to day basis. What are some things that have worked well for you? Have you, um, do you have any good takeaways about quarantining and working from home with kids? Um, what were your top strategies sort of that have, that have worked and what were some of your successes if you want to share some of those? Yeah. So I basically have two principles, um, that I try and abide by that can be applied to, uh, multiple situations. And so the first is, Um, just this idea of leveraging my responsibilities. So things that have to be done. Um, And so I, you know, think of things like you've got to do laundry, you have to do dishes, like right now I'm, I'm pumping and feeding a child, right? Like all of these different things. And so, um, so I leverage those responsibilities kind of in two different ways. Um, One is to make times of chores, getting things done, times of meaningful engagement with my kids. And so um, in that way, rather than me staying up late doing laundry, okay, laundry is going to be a family activity, right? So we're going to fold laundry, put it in the basket, we're going to throw the kids in the basket, and we're going to become cars, and we're going to run around, and I'm going to push the laundry basket around the house with them in it. And um, or, uh, racing to bring the laundry to the living room and, or the laundry room and who, whoever gets it first, uh, wins, you know, the prize of hugs and kisses or whatever. And so, um, and so that's one way to kind of leverage those responsibilities where I feel like I'm still doing the things that need to be done, but I'm also meaningfully engaging my kids, um, at the same time. Um, the other is, doing the things that need to be done and allowing myself to relax at the same time. So you can see one of these happens during the day, right? When kids are awake and the other happens in the evenings. So, um, or on the weekends or whatever. And so, um, 
for example, I have to pump when I'm at school um, or at my job. Um, and so when I pump, I either watch shows on Netflix or listen to podcasts. I have one that's my particular favorite to listen to while I pump, you guys. Um, so uh, so um, I do those things that are kind of relaxing and life-giving to me while I'm doing something that is a necessary evil, you know? Um, and it might take me twice as long to do dishes because I'm watching a Netflix show at the same time. But the reality is if I didn't put those two things together, I would have to choose one or the other, right? And so um, putting those two things together seems to make sense to me. Um, and the second thing that I do is um, when working at home with my kids is setting and communicating clear boundaries for working, not only to my kids, but also to my spouse. Um, and obviously this looks different depending on your ages of your kids, but I give specific um timelines and expectations. So I'll say to my four-year-old, I'll say, okay, I need 20 minutes. I'm going to set this timer so you can see how much time I have left and I can see how much time I have left. And I'm going to, you know, work on this chapter on my dissertation for 20 minutes or one episode of uh, PJ masks, for example, or what, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, and then after that, you and I are going to go for a walk around the block, you know? And so I build in specific chunks of time. And then I find that actually communicating with them what item I'm going to accomplish in that time period gives them more value of not just like, oh, you're looking at your phone or, oh, you're going to, um, you know, push me off to go do something that you think is more important. But rather it's here's a specific period of time. Here's what I'm going to accomplish. Once that's done, I'm all yours for 10 minutes, you know, or whatever. And so um, that's kind of how I do it. Um, and then the most important thing about that is if you explicitly say it out loud, then you have to stick to that amount of time. And so not just like, oh, I'm almost done. I need five more minutes, right? You have to say no matter what, where you're at at that point, like drop what you're doing and engage. Um, and that to me just helps me not feel guilty all the time uh, for, for not being with my kids. Um, and then finally, this is something that like I haven't done, um, but my community has really stepped up to engage with my kids um, in meaningful ways, even from afar. So, for example, um, we have family in town that will go to the library, pick up library books, you know, drive through or whatever, and then drop them at our house and then take the old library books from the last two weeks, you know, and kind of rotate back and forth. Um, or they'll mail scavenger hunts to my kids. And so they get a piece of mail every week that they get to open and then we get to do scavenger hunts. Um, and so I, I, you know, I talked about the Easter eggs, you know, and um, this week we did a virtual cookie baking um, over the holidays. And so um, it takes a little bit more effort on my part uh, to, to make it happen, but I'm not, you know, I'm facilitating it. I'm not creating content, <laughs> if that makes sense. And so um, that kind of takes some burden off as well. So those are just kind of some tips of ways that I've fumbled through the last nine months. <laughs> that all sounds really good and relatable. I think Judith and I can both relate to that. I like that sense of like 
breaking things up into like manageable points of time. I think being very transparent with the children can be helpful. I often have to say the same thing like, look, I have 20 essays to grade. And then when I'm done, I'm done. And I love that. (laughs) Maybe it's not PJ Masks anymore, but it's like, okay, (laughs) you've got, it's an episode. I don't know what they even watch anymore, but you know, you're on watching the kids YouTube. And when you're done with the show, that's when I'll be done. It's about 22 minutes or whatever. So I love that. Um, I think you sound very wise and I think you have a lot of good. I, I love that your community is like being so supportive though. And I think that really um, is something that we're probably going to have to continue to rethink if we, if we're all continuing to work from home because it's just hard sometimes Absolutely. to balance all this. Um, and I love the Netflix too, by the way. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so it sounds like from uh, the email, you were expressing a little bit of concern about the question of whether or not to acknowledge your family in job interviews and also how to create sort of an academic persona around that. Would you be willing to share your thoughts with that a little bit more? Um, It sounds like you'd mentioned the idea of branding yourself. And I think that's something that one of our other guests had mentioned. And I'm still kind of looking at that, right? This idea of curating a particular research dossier, if you will, or giving yourself sort of a brand. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, I have lots of thoughts. I'm not sure that I have any answers, um, but this is a, a question that um, I talk through with um, folks on a on a daily basis. Um, but you know, I feel like there's a responsibility to promote the work that I'm doing because I see the value in it, especially right now. Um, but I also have concerns about. Um, putting my kids' faces all over social media and things like that from a communication. My, my master's is in communications. Um, that scares me a lot. And so um, kind of walking this line and this balance of um, creating a, a persona online that is authentically me and yet um, also regulated, if that makes sense. Um, because, you know, you always hear that, uh, as you're, um, on the job market, the first thing they're going to do is Google you. Right. And so, um, who I want to be, um, I would like accurately reflected there. Um, but also I study, um, mother scholars. And so the logic would would tell anybody uh, that if she's studying motherhood, then she's probably a mom. Um, It's not something that I would feel comfortable hiding in an interview because for me that feels inauthentic um, and I want to be authentically myself in all the things that I do. Um, But at the same time, it's not my one defining role. Um, And so I'd like my idea of my research and my ideas and my publications, um, to stand on their own. Um, but I also think it adds a human perspective of who I am. And, and for me, it adds value and purpose to why I do what I do. Right. And so I kind of go back and forth (laughs) on what that looks like. And, um, I think, I think I've settled on the fact that it's not something that I'm going to hide. I'm not going to hide my kids in an interview. I'm going to wear my wedding ring. I'm going to be authentically me, right? Um, but at the same time, I want my professional identity to stand on its own um, and my experience to speak for itself. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know. It's a hard, a hard road to, to walk, but um, 
I'm trying. I agree, <laughs> I agree with I agree with that, and I think the the question of the research, the subject matter, is really core here. Uh, I think for some people, it might be easier to not have it come to the fore in job interviews or whatever. But I agree if somebody were to look up my dissertation or were to look up anything about me, and especially now with the podcast too, I think it's, it's obvious that motherhood is a, is a, you know, core component to how I identify and, you know, what I think about. And so the question of whether or not it makes sense to hide that in a job interview, I think, is a, is interesting and is difficult to answer. I agree with you on that. And I don't, I haven't applied for jobs recently, so it hasn't come up for me, but it's definitely something that I thought about while I was looking for the job that I have now. There were um, different job interviews that I had, and, and so it was always a question of sort of is this obvious to people? Does it matter? You know, how I, I always feel that it doesn't, um, I, my sense is always, or my take on it is always, it doesn't affect the quality of the work that I do, but it does affect, you know, my, it it does affect certain limits and certain limitations of like, you know, I can't work past five because that's when the daycares close and things like that. So there are certain expectations I feel like that can be, you know, that, there are certain expectations, I think, sometimes in on the job market where the fact that you're a mother sort of plays into, I think, how people read you and what people think you can you can offer. And so the the other aspect of it is, too, is once that's on the table, you don't have much control over how people view that. Right. So you're saying, like, I, I want my primary um, the, the primary aspect and the primary thing that people should look at should be the quality of the research and the quality of the work that you do. And the the question is, how do you, you know, how can we guarantee that that's actually how we're being viewed? I think that's sort of like where the difficulty comes in. And I, yeah, I don't have any answers to that either. I'm with you on that. Um, so and I think one oh, thing that you guys um, talked about in an earlier episode is this idea of um, you know, your, your Christian kind of upbringings and backgrounds, um, in, in, uh, also your feminist approach to your research. And so that's another thing that I've kind of been struggling with, um, over the last couple of years is how those, those two different, uh, things, which, you know, aren't at odds, but have been pitted politically at odds, um, can, can both simultaneously, be part of the identity as well and how much to put both of those portions of me right out uh, publicly both in my research and and as part of my brand and so um, it's it's a hard world to navigate um, but I kind of fall on the fact of like being as authentic as I can um, while protecting my kids and my family the best that I can right and that's that's the best I can do. And, um, it might not always be the right decision, but I just try my best. Right. (laughs) I think that's an important question. I, I think I had, before I had, I, before I had the job that I have now, I had a different job and I worked at it for a very, very short period of time and it really wasn't a good fit at all. And I think if, um, and I think I knew that taking the job, but I had been on the market for so long that I just felt I needed to take any job. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, when I resigned, you know, after just barely making it through the training, people were, you know, obviously upset with me. But at the same time, I felt that if they had done any sort of research into my profile, into my research agenda or whatever, they could have, you know, they could have looked at the abstract of the article that I published. And it would have also been obvious to them that this, I wasn't going to be a good fit for the position. So I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it does make sense to put some of those things on the table because ultimately a job interview process is a, is a question of a mutual fit, right? It's, it always feels when you're on the job market, it feels like, you know, you're just, you just really need to um, get a job and sometimes it feels like, at least it did for me, any job will do, but that's not necessarily the case. And that's not really how, you know, that's, a, a, I think a more helpful way to look at the job interview process is to think about, okay, how does this job fit me, but also how do I fit that job? And so the more um, of our, you know, the things that really matter to us, we can put into our branding and our profile the better it is, I think, for everybody involved. I don't know. But that's just that one sort of that's like an anecdotal. That's just that one negative experience that I had where I think, you know, that that would have benefited everybody. But um, moving forward, uh, we have one more question that we'd like to ask you. Um, is there anything from your research or your work that you think would be helpful for other academics or uh, for other academic mothers and parents? Yeah, I think I think the most important takeaway is that, you know, we're really all in this together. Um, in each interview that I've I've talked to, um, these mother scholars are talking about how they've had um, other mothers that have come alongside them and supported them, but also other non mothers, right? Whether that's um, you know, dads that are in their departments or people that have no kids, right? And so this idea of um, the effects of the last year um, are going to be long-term effects that are felt for a long time. Uh, and I think that's nothing new for moms, right? Because you have a child and all of a sudden you think, okay, well, I'm in this for at least the next 18 years significantly, right? And then after that, like, probably also the same. Um, and so it's this idea of just long-term investment in people. Um, and, and I think it's really important, whether you're a mom or a dad or a colleague um, or whoever, just to give a little bit of extra grace right now um, and ask the hard questions that are complicated and sometimes sticky and sometimes not palatable. Um, and be open to some hard answers. Um, and then just do the best you can. I mean, <laughs> just just one foot in front of the other um, sometimes is all I can manage. But when people are like, hey, I was just thinking about you today. I hope you have a great day. You know, like that is like, okay, I can take three more steps, you know? <laughs> and so I think the most important thing is just that we're all in this together and we've got to support each other through it. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I think we're going to try to speak to at some point what we've learned from 2020. We were just sort of chatting about that. And like, there have been some moments of positive growth for us. And I think that sense of community and assisting one another 
assisting one another is one of those high points. And so we tend to close off uh, with talking about our reading. But Jessica, you said that you're just in the right, right, right phase, which is totally yes. relatable. I get that. Um, Judith will have to revisit our reading schedule maybe in the next few episodes, but we're still just both plotting along. I think that has been an awesome conversation. Um, Jessica, I really definitely enjoyed it. And like you had said, I'm I'm really excited to read your final project and dive a little bit deeper in your research. And I really hope one day we can connect and maybe, you know, like I said, maybe there's um, some sort of cross uh, interdisciplinary research or some way we can work together because this all sounds fascinating. Judith, how about you? Yeah, I agree 100%. This was a really inspiring uh, conversation for me. There was so much there, you know, listening to you talk about how you took 2020 in stride and, you know, the importance of the support system and, and all of those things are really, really resonated with me personally. And like Aaron says, the, the content of the research is really fascinating. I'm really glad that there are people out there like you that really look at how, um, how women in, in STEM, but also women in the academy in general, uh, are able to sort of navigate their identities as mothers and as scholars. And so I'm excited um, about that work. Um, if our listeners are also excited about what they heard today, um, do you want to tell us where they can find you online if they want to look you up? Uh, sure. Um, I am on Instagram. That's the only platform I'm currently on. It's about all I can handle. Um, but I'm Jessica Spot with two T's, S-P-O-T-T uh, underscore T-T-U. Um, and so you can find me on there um, or you can also email me at jessicaspot at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to continue conversations there. Um, and I'd just like to thank you, Erin uh, and Judith, for having me on. It's been such a, a pleasure uh, talking to you and, and getting to know you a little bit. And um, I'm, like I said, I've been fangirling all week knowing that this interview was coming up. So thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been great. Well, thanks. We love having guests on and it's so great to build this network. So we look forward to more feedback from our listeners. It's so cool to be able to connect to you all in this important way. So Judith, as I always ask you, if our listeners did want to possibly come on and share their research, where can they contact us via Instagram and via email? Yes, we are also on Instagram at PhD in Parenting. And then if you want to send us an email with some feedback, you can do so at um, PhD in Parenting podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please uh, go ahead, share us with a friend, leave us a review or a rating on Apple, or just get in touch with us in the ways that I just outlined. Um, thank you so much for listening this week and every week and we look forward to coming back with a new episode to you soon all right until next time thanks for listening Bye.